As Aaron mentioned, we're going to be in Nehemiah, starting a new series here in Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 1, starting in verse 1, going through verse 11. So Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chizev, in the twelfth in the 20th year, as, in, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived that, the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants." confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Will you please pray with me? Father, these 11 verses, the second half is about prayer, and we are thankful that we have the opportunity to come before the throne of grace and lift up our voices to You in praise and in supplication. Lord, we live in a Genesis 3 world on our way to a Revelation 20 world. Uh, we, we live here on earth looking for heaven. We understand that there is difficulties here and there is much difficulty going on and through our body right now, as well as much joy. But I would just like to highlight a couple of it. Right now, the, the Smiths where Daniel and Michelle are with their little, little boy Cortland in the hospital because he's having uh, breathing issues. Uh, Lord, we pray for the Collins family who lives. Her mom is, is on her, her last days. Lord, we pray for, for my dad who had a heart attack this last week. Lord, we pray for Bob and Becky, who is Bob is burying, I believe, his mother this weekend in Illinois. Oh, Lord, there's many more requests over us. And we are just glad that we can go to the high priest who can sympathize with us. Because you stepped out of heaven, you walked this earth, and, and you walked and, and were compassionate towards your people. You felt the sting of death, and literally you died, and then you defeated death and rose again. And you defeated the sin, you defeated the sickness, and you defeated the suffering, and that because of that, we look forward to the day of heaven of being with you and all of our loved ones and those that have repented and trusted in you forever and ever, worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And thank you for Nehemiah as we open up his book, because we see that the good hand of God was on him. 
And because of what you put in his heart and what he proceeded to accomplish by your will, Lord, we are standing here today and have hope. And so, Lord, I thank you for Nehemiah and this book and what it's going to do in this body, in this church, these next three months. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. Well, again, we are starting a new book. And I love the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of my favorite books in all the Bible. And one of the main reasons why is because when I became a Christian way back in 1990, one of the first books that I did a study through was the book of Nehemiah. And the Lord has used this book tremendously in my life. I, I resonate with Nehemiah. I resonate as a man. I resonate with Nehemiah as a leader. And I resonate with Nehemiah as a man who wanted to follow the Lord with a passion and a purpose uh, to do great things for God and His name. This is why I love Nehemiah. One of my the verses that I go back to over and over again from that study that I gleaned that the Lord has used on my life. It's one of my life verses comes from Nehemiah 2.8. And this is what the verse says. For the good hand of my God was upon me. That, that verse just stuck out to me way back in 1990 when I started to go through the book of Nehemiah. For the good hand of the Lord of God, of my God, was upon me. And what this, what this verse did is it rooted me, it rooted my soul in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. In the sovereignty and the goodness of God ruling over my life. That I knew whether if I was on green pastures or if I was walking down in a very difficult trial in a valley, that the good hand of my God was upon me. He, he was guiding and directing me by His sovereignty. And it was for my good. And that when David says that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, it is the same here. That I knew from studying this as a young man that God imprinted on my life that as I followed Him, that His good sovereign hand would be on my life. And no matter what situation I would face, I knew that He was with me. That He was leading, that He was guiding, and He was directing my life. And the good news this morning is, the same is true for you. That the good hand, if you are in Christ, if you repent of your sins and you trusted in Jesus, that the good hand of God is on you. He's leading. He's guiding. He's directing. He's encouraging. He's walking you through the season of life that you are in. And we have some, as we prayed, that are in the valley. That are going through very difficult times. And there might even be a question of like, where are you, God? And we can be assured from Scripture he is right there holding you up, guiding and directing you. And then for those of us in here that are on green pastures and doing well, again, that's just a good gift of God and we can be thankful. And so this morning as we, uh, and over the next three months, uh, this is our desire. This is my desire. This has been my prayer since I've been studying this over the summer, that the good hand of God would guide us through Nehemiah and that we would be guided, taught, challenged, and encouraged through this principle, through this truth as we study Nehemiah. And that would propel us to do great things for the kingdom of God and for the people of God just as it did for Nehemiah. I am really, I'm stoked for this study because in three months when we finish this study, as we go through Nehemiah line by line and verse by verse, when we come to the end, I'm excited to see what the Lord is going to do through you. 
what He's going to do through you for your care, your desire, your passion, and have a purpose to bless the people and the kingdom of God. Amen? And so let's just dive right in. And before we dive right in, we have to get a little, a little background, a little context uh, to uh, the history of Nehemiah. What, like, where is Nehemiah starting? What's going on as Nehemiah pens this verse? And then we're going to give you a little bit of a, of a history uh, quiz and test over the nation of Israel. There'll be a test on it as you guys leave. So get ready. Take good notes, right? We know that God called Abraham in, in Genesis uh, and he called him out of the land of Ur. And he gave him a mission. He gave him a covenant. He covenanted with Abraham and his family in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And then we see that as God moved through the, the, the story of redemption, he made a, a covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai, the, the old covenant. And that Moses would take the nation of Israel and he would lead them up to the promised land. And then he would die. And then jo, uh, Joshua would lead them into the promised land, into Jerusalem, as we know down in modern day Israel. And then we see that there's another covenant that was struck with King David. The monarchy was created with, with a Saul and then David and then Solomon. And, and there was a Davidic covenant that was made with the nation of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then David had a, a son named Solomon. And, 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 and these were the golden years, particularly under David's reign in the nation of Israel. And, and Solomon started out well, and he, he built the temple of God, but he didn't finish as well. In fact, there was civil war and there was a split in the nation of Israel. There was a split. The, the, there was ten tribes that became the northern kingdom, and then two that became the southern kingdom. And then we, as we see, as Israel progressed, that they, they failed to obey the Lord. They, they failed, and so God brought judgment on it. First, on the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., where the Lord brought the, the nation Assyria against them and conquered the northern kingdom. But the, the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, they held off Assyria. But then Judah again fell into sin, and in 586, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came in and conquered the southern kingdom. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles 38 in Daniel chapter 1. 2 Chronicles 36, sorry, not 38, 36, 17 through 21 said that when, when, Israel, when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered, that they burned the city. They, they broke down the walls, and then they took the people and exiled them. They, they took them from Jerusalem, from Israel, to Babylon, and that's where they culturally assimilated them into their culture. And then after that, then we see that later, years later, the Persians come along in 539 BC, and they conquer Babylon under King Darius and King Cyrus. And you can read about this in, in Daniel chapter 5, also in Jeremiah chapter 25. And, and the Persians, in particular King Cyrus, had a very different way to rule. They were much more, we say, humane in the ways that they ruled. They didn't want to assimilate all the people into being Persians. They wanted to, to let people be who they wanted to be. So, so they, what they did is in Second Chronicles 26, Cyrus, the Persian king, let the Jews Jews go back. In fact, uh, he was commanded by God and he, a pagan king, followed God's orders on this. In 2 Chronicles 26 and in Ezra chapter 1, this is what we read, that Cyrus gets this decree to send the Jews back to Jerusalem. It says this, thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia. Again, he's a, he's a pagan king. He doesn't believe in Yahweh, the God of the Jews. But this is what he says. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven. This is, he's talking about the God of the Jews. He acknowledges that he is the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. And whoever is among you of all of his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. 
And so under King Cyrus, he, he lets uh, the, the exiles go back to Jerusalem. They can go back. And this is what begins what we call the, the wave of exiles back into Jerusalem. And there were three main waves. Uh, the first wave took place in Ezra chapter 2 with Zerubbabel. And he took uh, thousands of uh, Jews back with him to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then the second wave came with Ezra, the scribe who scribed Ezra. And it comes in Ezra chapter 7. And he, and he rebuilt the community of faith through the proclamation of God's word in the Old Testament. And then the third wave is here with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the one who brings about the third wave of exiles from Babylon scattered all over the world back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah's main focus is to rebuild the city walls and to continue to build the community of faith. And so this is where history finds us. We're getting ready about the third wave of the exiles from King Cyrus, the Persian king, to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and to, again, build the temple and worship in which way God has commanded them to worship. And here's an interesting note. The story of Esther, the story of Esther takes place in between the first and the second wave of exiles coming back, which will be vitally important for us in Nehemiah, and we'll see why in a short moment. So that's a little bit of the background. That's a little bit of the history. So let's look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, 1 through 3. And first we see the shame of God's people. We see the shame of God's people. Look at verse 1. One, We're introduced to Nehemiah, who Nehemiah is. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Uh, verse 11, I was a cupbearer to the king. Uh, the word ne uh, Nehemiah's name means Yahweh has comforted or the Lord's comfort. And really, we don't really know much about Nehemiah. What we know about Nehemiah is found in Nehemiah. There, uh, as far as we know, there's not, nothing, no other references in the scripture about Nehemiah. Uh, we don't have a historical biography on Nehemiah. So what we know about Nehemiah is in Nehemiah. Uh, the first chapters 1 through 6 and 13 kind of read like Nehemiah's biography. Like he is giving us a glimpse into his life as he does this, leads this third exile. And then in chapter 7 and 12 are like Nehemiah's official government records of what he has taken place as he leads these exiles back to Jerusalem. We see that he had a father, which all humans do. He has a father. His name was Hakaliah. Well, who was Hakaliah? No one knows. What did Hakaliah do? No one knows. Right? We see in verse 2, he probably had a brother, and most believe with this, Hannah and I believe that this was his blood brother. And then we read in verse 11, he was a cupbearer to the king. And this is probably going to give us the most detail on Nehemiah and his life. He was a cupbearer to the king. And at first, when we think of cupbearer, we we don't think too highly of cupbearers. We might think of a lowly servant, right? We, we've seen the uh, kind of those old school English, maybe English, you know, movies and stuff that take back in the, 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 the medieval times with a king and you had the cupbearer who would bring the king his, you know, cup of wine. And he was always like a peasant. He always didn't seem to be important. Well, in this day and age, in the Persian Empire, we read, history tells us that the cupbearer was actually like Joseph in Egypt. He's actually like the second in command next to the king. The king trusts the cupbearer because the cupbearer is always with the king. Uh, there's probably only one person that the king trusts more than the cupbearer, and that is his wife. One said that uh, the cupbearer position in the Persian thing would be like the chief of staff to the president of the United States. So this was an important position. 
He was very influential. People wanted to know who Nehemiah was because he had the ear of the king. He would be living in the finest palaces. He would be wearing the best clothes. He would be enjoying the best entertainment of the day. He would be eating the best foods and drinking the best drink. And he would be the most trusted man in the kingdom to the king. He had the king's ear. He was a man of honor, a man of integrity, a man of character, a man of loyalty, a man that the king could trust. So this gives us a glimpse even more into who Nehemiah was. But there was a downside to being the cupbearer. Because back then, back then in, in, in ancient times, uh, there was an ancient pastime uh, wanting to kill the king on the throne. And the way they killed the king on the throne was to try and poison the king through the wine and through the food. And what the cupbearer would do is he would drink the wine, he would taste the wine in the cup and then give it to the king. So if there was any kind of poison in it, he would take an L before the king. And so other than that, it's a great job, right? Other than that, who wouldn't want this job? But here's the question. Nehemiah is Jewish. He's an exile. He's not Persian. You would think that the Persian king would want a Persian next to him as his number two in command because he knows the customs. He knows the culture. He knows what Persia is about. But it's not. Nehemiah is a Jew. Why is that? How did Nehemiah get this position? And this is where we have to go back to Ezra. And here what we see is just the, the good hand of God sovereignly, providentially moving in history so that His will, His decree would come about. Nehemiah. Remember about Esther. So Nehemiah is a Jew. He's serving the Persian king. The Persian king he is serving is Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes II. Uh, most scholars believe that Artaxerxes was the son of Esther's husband, Xerxes I, or Azuerus in Esther chapter 1. So Esther was married to Xerxes, who had a son, Artaxerxes, who Nehemiah is serving right now. Now the son, Artaxerxes, the king who Nehemiah is serving, is seen to be uh, Esther's stepson, most commentaries believe it's the stepson that Xerxes had Artaxerxes through another wife. But still, you see the providence of God. So the reason why probably Nehemiah is at the right hand of Artaxerxes is because Artaxerxes' stepmom, Esther, could trust Nehemiah. Artaxerxes knew the story of Esther and her loyalty, her wisdom, her commitment to the Lord that led his father through some of the most difficult times in his reign. Isn't that cool? There's a cool God providential in how Esther influences. So the reason why Nehemiah is the cupbearer to Artaxerxes is because of Esther's influence. Now let's look at Nehemiah 1.1. Let's continue. And now it happened in the month of Kislev. And the month of Kislev in the Jewish calendar is November and December. It's winter. Now details matter, so keep that in your mind. In the 20th year, I was in Susa. Susa was uh, the capital city. It was like the, the winter home of the king. It got cold in uh, Persia, so they would go to Susa. It'd be like the snowbirds that go to Scottsdale, Arizona to escape the winters back east. 
And so this was what Susa. What's also interesting about Susa is this is the capital in where Esther won the beauty pageant to be married to Xerxes. All right, so there's a lot of stuff going on. Details matter. So cool. And then verse 2, Then Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with a certain man from Judah, and I asked them concerning. You should underline that phrase. And I asked them. Nehemiah asked the right question. He asked the right question. Concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, so here's the report of the question. The remnant, the people of God, there in the province who survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. And what we see here is again, we get a glimpse into Nehemiah's heart. We see what kind of man Nehemiah is. He is a man of compassion. He is a man who, even though he's in the king's palace and all the travelings, he's living the life with the Persians. He still cares about his people. He cares about his people because God cares about his people. And so we see that God, uh, Nehemiah's heart lines up with God's heart. Again, Nehemiah is living the life in the king's palace. And when, they, when his brother comes, he asks about his people who are a thousand miles away. How are the people of God doing? That's the right question. How are the people of God doing? And the report is not good. They're living in shame because the walls are broken down. They are vulnerable. We, we know in ancient times, and even today, walls and fences are important. In particular, back then, uh, a broken down walls would mean that God's people are vulnerable and exposed to other countries that would want to come in and try and take over them. Uh, they were exposed. They were vulnerable. The walls protected them from outside invaders, but also were a good gift. Walls are a good gift of provision inside those who are inside the walls. They could, they could, they could, they could have a good time without the worry of people coming against them. The walls were protecting them so they could live life abundantly and with joy and without worry. So walls were important back then. And we also know that walls and borders are important today, right? I just read an article a couple weeks ago that uh, Homeland Security just built Joe Biden a $500,000 fence around his house. Who got to pay for that? We did. Amen. All right. Right now. So, so walls matter, right? Around homes, around countries. And, and, and there's a number of good jokes that we can continue to go down this while. And, and there's even some serious conversation about us and our borders that, that, that needs to take place. But that's not what Nehemiah is talking about directly. He's not talking about America's borders. He's talking about a broken down wall. And he's grieved because who lives in the city with the walls broken down? The people of God. And he knows, he understands how vital the people of God are to the world. Because the covenant tells us that the Savior of the world was coming through this people group. And this people group was exposed to, again, to being conquered and possibly extinct. So Nehemiah's main concern is that the people of God are in danger. And that's such a big deal because through these people that the Savior of the world would come. If there was no Israel, there would be no salvation. And this is what worries Nehemiah. This is why he asked the question, how are the people of God doing? And again, this is a pivotal point in history, in the world. And Nehemiah understands the gravity of the situation and is 
concern. So again, he asks the right question. How are the people of God doing in Jerusalem? And you know what this does? This propels us to ask a very similar question. It propels us to ask a very similar question that Nehemiah had. And that question is, how are the people of God doing today, now? How is how, the church doing? It would be like, you know, I, I, I went to college at the University of New Mexico. We just went back there to do Rita's grandma's funeral. And when I got there, I saw some friends and I was like, the church that I went to way back in 1990 to 1990, you know, it doesn't matter how long. But I asked, hey, how's the church doing? How's Calvary Chapel doing? How, how, how are they doing? This is what's happening with Nehemiah. How, how, he's concerned for the people of God. When you hear that a church closes down, does that affect you? Does that cause concern? There's a big another article of a, of a major um, pastor, a celebrity pastor in the Acts 29 movement that, that got removed. Does that, does that concern you? It should. Just like Nehemiah, because Nehemiah was concerned about God's people. And the reason why Nehemiah was concerned about God's people, the reason why that we should be concerned about the church and God's people is because Jesus is concerned about his people. Jesus loves his church. Revelation 1, 9 through 20 tells us that Jesus is in the midst of his church. Jesus lives in the midst of his church. He is leading and guiding and directing and loving and encouraging his church through good times and through bad. When describing on how us as men should love our wives, the example given is how Jesus loves the church. In Ephesians 5, 25, it says this, Christ loved the church and He gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot, wrinkle, or such things that she might be holy and without blemish. The reason why Nehemiah loves God's people, the reason why we love God's people is because Jesus loves God's people. We are at the heart of Jesus. You and me. Jesus loves His church and therefore we should love His church. We should be concerned with her. And when she's struggling, when she's suffering, then that should impact us. And when she's doing well, that should impact us. Well, what church are we talking about? Well, it's both ends. It's the universal church. It's the church all over the world. That we should be in tune at some level with the church all over the world. And it's also the local church. This is the reason why that, that the crossing invests in church plants in the Czech Republic. There's a reason why we do fundraisers to send people over to the Czech Republic to encourage the people in the Czech Republic. The church that we have helped plant in the Czech Republic is because we love the people of God. And we're living out what God has called us to. And so when you hear that the church in Olomouc is serving a couple hundred refugees, actually they've, they've served a, a several thousands of refugees, but about 200 have, 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 have settled in Olomouc, the town of Olomouc, in which our church is there. And when we hear what they're doing, how they're serving them, it should move us to action. We, it should move our hearts to care. It should immediately move us hearts to pray for them. And many of you have sent money to them and resources and things. So that's what it means to love the church, the universal church, but also the local church. 
there's a reason why we just went through four weeks of, of our, what our life groups should be about. Our four pillars of life groups. It's because here is where we see the expression of the love of church lived out through one another. That if we love one another, we're going to gather. Not only on Sunday mornings, we're going to gather throughout the week and we're going to serve, encourage, and walk through life with one another. This was just, again, the week before last. Um, on Wednesday night, our life group, it was guys night. We meet on Wednesdays. The guys, we are getting ready. Um, we had our guys time. So we had about 11, 12 guys go to BJ's and we're just getting ready. To, we're getting ready to talk and stuff. And, and the next day, Thursday, Rita and I and the family were about to go drive to Albuquerque to do, again, Rita's grandma's funeral. I was going to do her funeral. And then that day, my dad had a heart attack. And so here I am with these guys, and I'm sharing this. Hey, I'm on my way to do a, a funeral, which is bittersweet. She loved Jesus, but she's, she's not with us anymore. It was a matriarchal family. She was the, the, the glue that held the family together. She's now in heaven, and we're rejoicing about that, but we're missing her. And then my dad has a heart attack, and I don't know what's going on. And there I was with the boys. And the boys cared. They prayed. They said, how you doing? And throughout the week, they followed through with that. They, they loved me. I love them. They love the church. They love the people of God. Nehemiah and Jesus love and are concerned about the kingdom of God and in particular about God's people. And so should we. And this is why I'm excited about Nehemiah and us going through this because this is going to be at the forefront of our study over the next three or four months or the next three months. And I am excited to see how you, again, as I already said, are moved by the Holy Spirit, informed by His Word, propelled by love for one another and what this body is going to continue to do not only throughout the world, but also here in Fort Collins. So that leads us to our second point, the supplication of God's man. The supplication of God's man. <coughs> Nehemiah. Ooh. Scratchy throat. Verses 4 through 11. Again, Nehemiah. He hears about the shame. He hears about the vulnerability of his people. The, the, the walls are down. The temple is built. The walls are down. The people are there. They're involved. He hears about the problem that the people of God face. So what does he do? Verse 4. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And that's what he does. He weeps, fasts, and he prays. The first thing again is that he weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem. He, he weeps over the people in Jerusalem. Does that remind you of another? Does that remind you of another who weeped over Jerusalem as he was looking over it? It should remind you of Jesus. In Luke 19.41, And when Jesus drew near, He saw the city and He wept over it. He wept over it because He knew that they were sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. They needed guidance. They needed a leader. They were, the, the walls were broken down, so Jesus wept. Secondly, we see that Nehemiah fasted and prayed. And it says that He fasted and prayed for days, and we think days. We think, oh, maybe two or three days. No, again, remember, details matter. He did this for months. Probably four to five months straight. The first thing Nehemiah did when he asked the right question and he got the word, the report back, is he didn't build a committee. He didn't take, you know, a poll on, hey, should we go do something or not? What did he do? He prayed and he fasted for four months. Again, Nehemiah 1 says this was the month of Kislev. 
Again, November, December. It's a little bit different in the Jewish calendar than ours. That's why it's November, December. And then if you look at Nehemiah chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, when Nehemiah goes into action, it says now the month is what? The month of Nisan. The month of Nisan is March or April. And so Nehemiah prays and fasts for again four to five months, seeking the Lord's will. This is where Nehemiah begins with consistent prayer. And this is where we should begin. This is where we should begin. We, we need to begin when we ask the question, what is going on with the people of God? We hear the report, what's going on? And our first response should be that of weeping in prayer. And in particular, prayer. Continual prayer. This is what we see from Nehemiah. In fact, we will see this throughout his book. Ten times it tells us how Nehemiah prays through these 13 chapters. He is the example of 1 Thessalonians 5.17 where it tells us to pray without ceasing, to pray continually. And this prayer in particular is focus. There's a consistency to it. It's not just a quick Hail Mary prayer. There's some thought, there's some time that is given to this. There's going to be times in our lives where we need to throw up those Hail Mary prayers, those quick prayers. We see that in Nehemiah chapter 2. But this prayer is a four to five month prayer. He is focused. He is dialed into what's happening around them and he's seeking the Lord for guidance and for wisdom. And again, this should be the norm of our prayer life. It shouldn't be rushed. It shouldn't just be like a Hail Mary prayer. The consistent aspect of our prayer should be a constant theme should have a consistency to it. Martin Luther said this, I have so much to do today, I will spend the next, the first three hours of the day in prayer. Okay? Now, that's Martin Luther. That's not you. That's not me. I, I can't spend the first three hours in prayer. Martin Luther can. I can't. That's not you. The point is, he understood the priority in praying. And not just quick Hail Mary prayers. Those are good. We all need to do that. But again, the consistent prayer life was substance of us praying through something, asking the Lord to do something in our lives, in our church, in our world. Again, this is the standard is that we should be a people that daily pray. Now, I want, to, I want you to hear this because even Tyler said this. This is why I, saying, I love our prayer ministry. And, and we're, we're gonna, this, next, this next Sunday, we're going to pray about sending a guy to a Middle East where we can't tell you where he's going to pray because they could throw him in jail or kill him. But he wants to see the people of God thrive in that. And so we're going we're gonna, to, where are we going to begin? We're going to begin where Nehemiah begins, with prayer. So that's why next Sunday is so important. So come next Sunday. But again, we talk about prayer a lot around here. And I don't want you to become all like, man, I don't, I don't pray enough. We, we preach prayer because the Bible preaches prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, Jesus taught us to pray daily. So that is the desire. That's what we preach, but also know that there's grace if we don't always get there. So know that. Hear that from my heart. I'm a pastor, and I don't always pray every single day. I know. Gasp, right? Shocker, right? But I'm human like you. Sometimes I get overwhelmed with life. I get busy. I get distracted. That's the desire. But my desire is to pray and commune with God, Lord, every day. But I don't always do it. So there is grace, but the desire is to pursue the Lord every day in prayer. 
Again, we talk about prayer around here a lot because it's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's as natural as breathing. And we've talked about this over the last in Hebrews. We, we spent a lot of time on prayer. I preached in the very first in January on Colossians chapter four, talking about prayer. And the model that we like to help guide us is Acts. Acts is the model that help guide my prayers and your prayers. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people over the years have used this model to help with their prayer life, to sustain their prayer life, to help focus their prayer life on the good hand of God moving through them. So they are selfless prayers and not selfish prayers. Acts, it's an acronym. A stands for adoration. Adoration. This is where we begin when we pray. This is the model that brings us into the presence of the Lord and to get our mind off ourselves and off our circumstances and first on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Adoration, esteem, revere, to give honor to. Look at verse 5. I believe we see this pattern in Nehemiah here in chapter 1. But look at chapter 1, verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. We see that Nehemiah starts with adoration. We can even feel the weight of his prayer as he's praying God, as he's looking up to the God of heaven, he declares the attributes. He declares what is true about God. He says he's great. This God is awesome. This God is faithful. He keeps the covenants. He's wise and his wisdom dwells in the commandments. He is loving. He's steadfast love towards his people. He hears our prayers. He sees our situation and he will respond. This is who Nehemiah is praying to. He, he first starts out in adoration. He keeps his eyes first on the king because that helps him then move and informs him how to move on <clears throat> the situation below. Abraham Lincoln, <coughs> Abraham Lincoln said this, one of the great leaders of our time, as we all know. This is what he said. He said, I've been driven many times to my knees by overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go but to the Lord in prayer. My own wisdom and that of those about me seemed insufficient for the day. You ever feel like Abraham Lincoln? Do you ever feel like you're in a situation and some of you are in that situation right now and your wisdom Your ability and even those around you cannot help you. They're insufficient. You need something from outside of you to come in to give you wisdom, to give you understanding, to give you the answer that you need in your situation. Just like Abraham Lincoln. Just like Nehemiah. And when we do this, we do this and we get that when we first look up. We look up to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We begin here because we know that we can overcome any situation because we understand that the good hand of the sovereign God is upon you and me and our situation. And He can do anything and He lacks nothing. 
I was going for a walk I, uh, uh, this, this week. I, I, I typically like to walk or ride our bikes. And we live in one of the most beautiful places in all the world. People from all around the world come to Colorado to ski, to hike, to hunt, to fish, to enjoy the mountains that we get to enjoy that are in our backyards. And I was just walking. It was a beautiful morning and the sun was behind me in the east and you could just see the layers of the mountains. And it, was just, it just brought me to praising the Lord. That the Lord, the God who created this by His spoken word that upholds this by His hand, cares for the creation. You see the birds flying. If He cares for the birds, if He cares for the grass, how much more does He care for you? And in that instance, of all the stuff that I'm going through and dealing with as a person and as a pastor, I say, God's got this. And I can have confidence that that He's going to use me because His good hand is on me. So this is where we begin. Adoration. Second, confession of sin. Look at verse 6b. Now I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we, you should circle that, which, which we have sinned against you, even I in my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah doesn't play the blame game. He doesn't say, woe is me. In fact, he actually unites the, the, the nation Israel through his prayer and, and confesses prayer that's not even his. We have sinned against you. He takes ownership on his people in their disobedience as well as his own. Because Nehemiah recognizes that the reason the people of God are in this situation or were captive or over, overcome by Assyria, we're overcome by Babylon, then we're overcome by Persia and under their captivity now. The reason why they're in this situation is because of their rebellion. It's because of their disobedience. Because they wanted to follow their own ways and not the Lord's ways. And so this is what you get in the Old Covenant. You get God's discipline. And Nehemiah understood this. And the only remedy to get out is through confession and repentance. It's to repent of your sin and my sin. It's for the nation of Israel to repent of their sin. Charles Spurgeon said this, sincere repentance is the continuous, is continual. Believers repent until their dying day. This is, this is a natural for you and me. We are positionally holy. We are positionally righteous. This is so, so crucial. In other words, when we repent and trust in our, uh, trust in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, His righteousness, His perfect life is imputed or credited to us. And so right now, as God looks at us, He sees saints. He sees men and women and children who have been washed by the blood of Christ. And He sees them as holy. He sees us as perfectly righteous, positionally. But practically, we are still here on this earth and there's a battle that we still have and sometimes we sin. And this is where practical righteousness comes in. This is where repentance and confession of sin comes in. Because as Jesus told Peter in John chapter 13, look Peter, you've already been washed. You just got a little dirt on your feet. You got to wash off. And that comes off through confession and repentance. This is practical righteousness. And this is what Nehemiah is doing right now for the people of God. These people have already been redeemed as we'll see in the next couple verses. And God's not going to leave them. They just need to come to Him in repentance. Repentance is a part of practical holiness. Let's just get real personal right now with some of you. With all of us, because we're all here sooner or later. Some of you are, are looking at your life and your life is, 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 is a struggle right now. And, 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 and the Bible clearly says that many times when we are struggling in life, it's because of unconfessed sin. 
It's because we're running and, and trusting our own lives, our own wisdom, and not that of the Lord. We have turned our back on the Lord. And a great way to come back to that is to confess your sin. It's to confess your sin. You can think of men and women throughout the Scripture where they run from God. And then they recognized their rebellion. They confessed it, and then God came in and walked them through that trial and brought them back to Himself. You make no progress in the Christian life by hiding sin. You don't. When we try and hide sin, and I can attest from personal experience, when I tend to hide sin, you know what follows? Pain, suffering, and not only to myself, but to my family and to others. It's where confession of sin happens. And by confessing sin, we are then free. We are free of that. Sin doesn't have its bondage over us. Man, we, our identity is in Christ. We are followers of Christ. Repentance and confession of sin is a good gift. It was a good gift thousands of years ago for Nehemiah, and it's a good gift for you and me this morning. Third, we see T, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. In, in, in Nehemiah 1, 8 through 10, uh, this, it says, uh, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. And then verse 10, that, 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 our, that they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. When, 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 when Nehemiah is talking about remembering, he's not saying like, hey God, I, you might have forgot, but you made a covenant with you know, the people of Israel. That's not what he's saying. When we see the word remember there, when we, when we see men and women call on the Lord to remember, it's saying act. Lord, I'm calling on you to act on what you promised that you would do. And so Nehemiah is thankful because God doesn't renege on his promises. God doesn't say, hey, I'm going to do this. And they said, ah, psych, just kidding, I'm not going to do that. What God says He's going to do, He's going to do. In the Old Covenant, He said that He has redeemed the nation of Israel. They are His people. I will be their God and they will be My people. Even whether they've sinned and they've rebelled, we see time and time again the heart of God coming, not obeying, but bringing back His people through His commandments, fulfilling His covenant promises because of who He is. He is faithful. And Nehemiah is thankful because he knows the Lord God won't break His covenant promises. He will bring His people back. He is thankful because he understands that God doesn't redeem a people to leave a people. And that was under the Old Covenant. How much more shall we be thankful in our prayers? Because we are not under the Old Covenant, we are under the New Covenant. I love how Cole opened up with the call to worship and his prayer. It was all about thanksgiving. He ripped off like 15 things he's thankful for, that we are thankful for, because we are living under the New Covenant in the reign of Jesus Christ. Amen? We just went through the book of Hebrews, and we talked about how Jesus is better Jesus is better. He inaugurates a, a better covenant, the, the, the new covenant. He, he's better than Moses. He's a better prophet. He's a better pr- king. He's a better high priest. He's leading us to a better mountain, not Mount Sinai, where people were still afraid, but He's leading us to Mount Zion, the new heavenly Jerusalem, where there is joy and partying going on. This is why we are thankful. We are thankful because these rewards don't come to us because we are, or because of our moral merits. They come to us and flow from us because God's magnificent mercy towards us. And that's why we're thankful. And that needs to be a continual 
process of our prayers, a continual pillar of our prayers, is being thankful for what God has done for us and what God is going to do to us. And then finally, supplication, S. Supplication, it means specific prayers. There's, there's like prayer, when you see prayer in the Bible and supplication, prayer is like big general supplication is like very specific prayers. Look at me at Nehemiah chapter 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Talking about the king and what's going to take place in Nehemiah chapter 2. And what I love about Nehemiah's prayer is it's bold. It's specific. He begins again knowing who his God is. He's great. He's awesome. He can move mountains. And then he gets specific. That's what I love about Nehemiah's prayer. And what I thought, <clears throat> look at it. He says, Be attentive to my prayer and give success and mercy to your servant. Do you know it's okay to ask for success for you when you pray? It's okay to ask the Lord to, to use you to do something great for His name, for His glory, and then for our joy. And that's what I love about Nehemiah. It's bold. And also what I love about Nehemiah, and notice this, that Nehemiah isn't a professional Christian. He's not a pastor. He's not a priest. He's not a missionary. He's a cupbearer. He works in the secular community for a pagan king. And yet he has this passion and this desire and this prayer to be used. He knows that God uses normal people. And we see that when he asks the question about the people of God, he's concerned. When he hears the response, he, he prays. And the Bible says, when you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. So God then gives Nehemiah this God-sized prayer, the specific mission to go out and accomplish for His glory, God's glory, and for Nehemiah's joy. And he's available for the Lord to step in and use him. Look at Nehemiah 2.12 real quick. It says this, And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. This is a, this is a prayer that's been given by God and laid upon Nehemiah's heart and he's available to lead it out. And throughout Scripture, we see normal, regular people God uses over and over again, in fact, way more than professional Christians, pastors, and missionaries to minister to the people of God and to build God's kingdom. Shipram Pua were midwives. Rahab was a harlot. David was a shepherd. Peter, James, and John were fishermen. Lydia was a businesswoman. And yet he used all these and many more thousands more in the Scriptures to build His kingdom, to do great things for God's glory and their joy. And the reason why is because these normal everyday people like you and me, they first had a big vision of who God was. That He was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that He could move mountains. That the good hand of God was on them. And then because of that, they could ask big prayers. And so, for us, as we finish up, we close. As you look at the state of God's people today, what might God put on your heart to accomplish for the Lord's name, for His glory and fame, and for your joy? Let us take a page from Nehemiah and pray. Here's, 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 here's what we want to, here's the big idea of practical application for you and for me. 
Over the next three months, let's be a people who pray, who seek the Lord diligently day in and day out. As we look around, as we are aware of what's happening in this body, in our life groups and outside the church, let us be a people who are praying specifically for God to move and possibly use you and use me to blow the roof off his king, off his church here in Fort Collins, Colorado and around this world. Let's take a page from Nehemiah and pray with boldness. Let's pray like we believe that the Lord is who he says he is. Amen. Let us pray and seek the Lord that his good hand is on you and me and the desires that he puts in our hearts. Let's not question them. Let's move forward with confidence. Understand the spirit of God is leading, guiding and directing us. I told the men at man school. that There are three kinds of people in this world. There are people who make things happen. There are people who watch things happen. <laughs> and then there are people that have no idea what's happening, right? And we can look around our world and we can see those three types of people in our world. And the question for us and you, and the challenge for you and me, and let's be the first type of people. Let's be the people of God who seek the face of God through prayer on our knees, first and foremost, to be used by God. Let us be a people who make things happen through the power of God's Spirit working in us, informed by His Word, and let us do that in community. This is what Nehemiah is going to challenge us to do over the next three months. And the reason why Nehemiah is such a good book is because Nehemiah doesn't end with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a type of Christ and points us to Christ, as we already alluded to a couple times in this message. It automatically, ultimately points us to Jesus and the great commandment and the great commission. Just like Nehemiah, Jesus left the heavenly palace to go walk with his people. We'll see Nehemiah do that next week. Jesus does that. Just like Nehemiah wept over the brokenness of the walls and his people, Jesus wept over the walls and the brokenness of his people. Just like Nehemiah prayed, Jesus prayed consistently throughout his life to the end where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, Father, remove this cup. But if you do not remove this cup, your will be done. I will bear the wrath of God for my people. I will bear the judgment that they deserve. Put it on me. I will walk through this. And we'll see next week, just as Nehemiah goes to work, Jesus went to work after that prayer. He went to work on the cross for you and for me. He died on the cross to take away the sting of death and give us the joy of salvation. And give us the joy of knowing that His good hand is upon us. And now He calls on you and me to pray and to work for His glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Nehemiah. Thank You for Your Word. Lord, thank You for the encouragement. Thank You for the challenge that You, that you are a God who still works today as You did 2,500 years ago in Nehemiah's life. You are looking for men and women who have the heart of You, who care about your kingdom, who care about the people in your kingdom, the church. And then when we ask the good questions and we hear the response that our 
Our first act is, is to pray and is to look to you as in adoration, as you are the sovereign, almighty, all powerful, all knowing, everywhere present king who's created this world. And that we follow you and that your good hand is on us. And that we confess our sin, knowing that sin is in our identity, but we have practical holiness that we confess our sin and you are faithful and just to forgive us. It's a good gift. And that we are thankful for all the good gifts that you give us. And then we ask big prayers. And we pray big prayers. And particularly over these three months to watch you move and build your kingdom through your people for your glory and our joy. Amen.